While Vegas may consider this fraudster to be one of the biggest gambling losers in history, the real loser was his employer, who was swindled for over $65 million. What's up, guys? Drew Howell here. And I'm Michael Thomas. Unless you're jumping ahead, you learned in episode one that we're trial lawyers in the Dallas office of Foley and Lardner. We put together this podcast, Busted, to talk about the most interesting financial fraud cases that we come across. The cases have an element of true crime that's relevant to many people out there, and they are just plain interesting. So here we are. So welcome back to Busted. Today, we're continuing our six-part series focusing on the trusted employee. And this is episode two. In our first episode, we talked about Sandy Jenkins, an everyday accountant for a fruitcake bakery that was able to use his inside knowledge to steal $16.5 million from his employer before his scheme was uncovered. So what do we have in store for today? Well, today we're talking about the vice president of merchandising and operations for Fry's Electronics, which no longer exists. But he took illegal kickbacks in excess of $65 million before his fraud was discovered. So a kickback scheme, this seems a little different than what we dealt with with Jenkins in episode one, right? I think that's fair. Sandy Jenkins was an accountant employed by a fruitcake company. His salary ranged from about twenty-five dollars to 50000 during the time he perpetrated his fraud which was primarily based on just writing duplicative checks. But our subject today, Omar Siddiqui, was a vice president of merchandising. He was responsible for all of Fry's purchasing. He supervised over 120 employees and earned an annual salary of $225,000. So it is a little bit different, but despite what you might think, there's also some similarities as well. All right, so let's connect the dots and show what's similar between Siddiqui and Jenkins. Sure. Well, Siddiqui started with Fry's in 1988. The company was just three years old. He had an inside track to the top, starting out as a salesman, advancing to department manager, becoming director of advertising, and ultimately named the vice president of merchandising in 2003. So he was with Fry's for over 20 years before he was fired shortly after the discovery of his scheme. So this is going to be a consistent theme. You know what I'm getting at. Yeah, what you're getting at is trust at the bot at the end of the day. But he was able to assume trust with the company, right? That's right. Siddiqui had both the inside knowledge of how Fry's operated and the benefit of the trust that he had built up over his many years with the company. Yeah, that's right. It was too aggressive. Okay. I remember Fry's as this massive company that had stores everywhere, these massive warehouses where you could buy it seemed like everything from TVs to electronics to components to your computer to candy and t-shirts almost. It seemed like they had everything. Well, yeah, let me unpack that just a little bit. First, yes, Fry's did have big stores, but it was still somewhat of a family-run business. Fry's roots were actually in food. Fry's Food and Drug was founded by Donald Fry in 1954. But to make a long story short, his kids didn't want anything to do with the grocery business. So he sold the chain, gave some of the proceeds from that sale to his kids, and they used that money to open the first Fry's Electronics in 1985. 
they did use a little bit of the knowledge and connections that they had from their father's grocery line, which gives you a little background on how the eclectic selection of items available at Fry's came to be. But my point is, while Fry's was big on the surface, it was still a small family business at its roots. Okay, I think I understand you. So let's get back to Siddiqui. How did he use his trust and his institutional knowledge of how Fry's operated? How did he use that information to effectively steal $65 million? Well, Siddiqui's job as the vice president of merchandising and operations was to get inventory from suppliers and vendors for Fry's to sell in its stores. And he was to get those items at the lowest price. So what he did was he convinced Fry's that he could save the company tons of money by eliminating sales representatives on his accounts. Instead, he proposed that he would act as the middleman between the vendors and Fry's. So his pitch to Fry's was that I'm going to do the jobs of these middlemen and eliminate that cost to you and save Fry's money in the long run, right? In theory, yes. But at the same time, he was also eliminating the other sets of eyes that would be watching what he was doing, right? Yeah, so nobody was really looking over his shoulder or looking at these transactions with the vendors and the negotiations with vendors. That's right. Nobody was watching. And in the meantime, what he was doing was charging really high commissions of up to 31%. In some instances, that's more than 10 times what would be considered a standard commission. And he was funneling this money to his straw company, PC International. And so you're using the word commission, but really what this was is at the end of the day, a kickback. I mean, a commission is what a seller pays its employees for selling goods. This is what the buyer, Siddiqui, was getting in exchange for causing his company, Fry's, to buy these goods from vendors. So this is, in effect, a kickback that was 10 times what the standard commission would have been had Fry's just maintained its relationship with these third-party vendors, right? That's right. That's right. I mean, what he really pitched was, hey, let's eliminate these independent sales reps that might earn 3 to 8% of a commission for helping facilitate a sale, and I will take their play. I will act as the in-between between Fry's and these vendors, but I will do it on a salary basis. But what he was telling the vendors on the other side was that, hey, we're actually going to continue these commissions. You can pay them to me. They're actually going to be higher and you can pay them to PC International. Okay. So why would these vendors agree to pay these higher rates? They could have these third-party vendors who would, they could pay three to 8% commission. Why on earth would they agree to pay Siddiqui a 31% commission? First of all, you have to realize that in order for Siddiqui's scheme to work, what he was doing was he was buying at prices higher than normal, and he was buying larger quantities than he would have otherwise purchased. So that was an advantage to these vendors from the outset. But additionally, he delivered on what he promised. He told them that what they were paying was a high marketing fee in exchange Fries would prominently display the vendor's products in stores and advertisements. So even though some of these vendors paid him millions of dollars over just two or three years, they didn't realize anything was wrong because they were continually seeing their products promoted heavily by Fries. 
And as a result, Siddiqui had a steady flow of cash that was hitting his bank account. All right, Drew. So let's talk about, of course, my favorite part of these podcasts. How did he spend this money? What did he spend it on? Well, this one is fun. Kind of plays out a little bit like a movie. He was a flashy guy and a lavish spender. He enjoyed fast cars, expensive bottles of rosé. But more importantly, Siddiqui was a gambling addict. Listen to this. He wired over $70 million to the Venetian casino. He was known by casino employees as a blackjack machine. According to one industry veteran, you couldn't deal fast enough. He gambled so fast that he would redline the house limit. What the IRS says is that Siddiqui spent over $162 million at MGM Grand Las Vegas and Las Vegas Sands casinos. I mean, he was such a regular that these casinos would send private jets to bring him from California to Vegas, offer him suites, and even give him free money to play with because they knew he'd add to it. Casino Org lists him as one of the largest losers in casino gambling history at $121 million. He lost over $8 million in a single day, Michael. How about that? Just incredible. I mean, the at the end of the day, while Casino.org may list him as the biggest loser, really the biggest loser is going to be Fry's because they were the one that had to fund this gambling habit. Touche. Touche. You know, Michael, I've done a lot of talking today. Why don't you give us your takeaways from our discussion? What do you think enabled Siddiqui's fraud and what can we learn from this case? So... I think as I'm listening to you tell this story, I think there's a couple of things that strike me that we could take away from it. The, the number one reason that Siddiqui was able to pull off this scheme was because he was successful at convincing Fry's to eliminate these other sales accounts, these other third-party vendors. And, and without that extra set of eyes, nobody really was looking into Siddiqui and the transactions he was negotiating. Nobody was evaluating whether or not Siddiqui was delivering on what he promised to Fry's, namely to save them money by negotiating better deals with these vendors. That strikes me as a big checks and balance that Fry's didn't have in place, that they could have had somebody there who was a second set of eyes or even just somebody assisting Siddiqui in negotiating these deals who would have quickly uncovered that they were paying 30% more for products than they otherwise would have to. So, so from your perspective, Fry's should have just passed up on this potential savings that Siddiqui was pitching? I don't think they would have had to, to completely pass up the saving. I think that this structure that Siddiqui posed to Fry's made a lot of sense. I mean, anytime you can eliminate a middleman or internalize that cost some way. I mean, businesses look to do that all the time. But the way Siddiqui was able to get away with his embezzlement scheme was that nobody was looking over his shoulder. And while you want to try to save money by eliminating third-party costs, you have to also keep in mind that if you make it really easy and you're not really double-checking what your employees are doing, employees can take advantage of that. And so when Siddiqui told Fry's he could save them money with this, with eliminating this sales representative model, Fry's should have said, okay, go and do it. And, and let's, let's actually monitor that process and see if it's successful. I mean, you could evaluate it year to year. You could have said, all right, in year one, when we had the outside sales reps, we were paying 
X for these these products. And then all of a sudden in your model, we're paying 30% more than what we would have otherwise had to pay it. That seems to be a simple check and balance that they could have undertook. Or they could have had somebody looking over his shoulder and, and second guessing these negotiations and making sure they were getting the best price possible. But like we started this podcast off by saying, the way these schemes go undetected and the way people get away with them to the tunes of tens of millions of dollars is is trust. At the end of the day, I imagine if we got the executives of Fry's to sit down and have a conversation with us, they would have said, Siddiqui was one of our best employees. He was there from the beginning. We trusted him. And that's really the issue here. So it was the unbridled autonomy that Fry's gave to Siddiqui that was problematic. There, there wasn't anyone else that was part of the process. I think that's true. And I think that it was too good a deal to pass up for Siddiqui, right? I mean, he realized that he could get these really high kickbacks. And quite frankly, he had a gambling habit that he had to fund somehow. And so greed got the best of Siddiqui, and he took advantage of fries in the process. Well, and you know, Siddiqui's fraud was uncovered in a very similar way to the fraud that we talked about in episode one. Another high-level employee walked into his office, saw confidential spreadsheets, letters, and documents on his desk showing these extraordinarily high commission amounts. And they called the IRS. Federal agents swarmed the headquarters of Fry's and coworkers watched as he was led away in handcuffs. So there is your cinematic ending, no? <laughs> I think so. And, and, and at the end of the day, while the FBI is scary, the IRS is terrifying. And so anytime tax evasion is a problem, you know you're going to have a problem. Well, that's all we have for today. We hope that you're enjoying Busted as much as we are. If you have a case that you'd like us to explore, drop us a line. Our contact information can be found in the podcast bio. So tell your friends and family to follow and subscribe, and we'll see you next time on Busted. Thank you for listening to this production from Foley and Lardner, LLP. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and is intended as a general overview. The podcast does not constitute legal advice nor solicitation to provide legal services. It's not meant to convey a legal position of Foley and Lardner, LLP, on behalf of any client, nor is it intended to convey specific legal advice. Any opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the firm, its partners, or its clients. The podcast is not intended to create, and listening to the podcast does not constitute an attorney-client relationship. The listener should not act upon this information without seeking counsel from a licensed attorney. Foley makes no representations or warranties of any kind, expressed or implied, as to the content of the podcast or to its accuracy or completeness and accepts no responsibility for an individual who acts or refrains from acting based on information obtained from the podcast. In some jurisdictions, the contents of this podcast may be considered attorney advertising. If applicable, please note that prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome.